This is the St. Charles History Chronicle, episode 2302. Beginnings. How our town became a city. Also, a discussion of museum history with former board president Steve Martin, brought to you by the St. Charles History Museum in St. Charles, Illinois. Hello and welcome to the St. Charles History Museum History Chronicles. I'm Steve Gibson. I'm president of the board here at the St. Charles History Museum. And with me today is my co-host, Eric Krupa, Collections Manager. Good morning, Eric. Hello. Good morning, Steve. We are back today to talk to you about a, uh, a topic that I guess is kind of apropos. We're going to talk a little bit about the beginnings of St. Charles. Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> and um, it's a kind of a confusing thing, or at least it's been confusing to me because as I study more about the, the history of St. Charles, I start to get more of the uh, uh confusion of dates. So, uh, for example, uh, most of our t-shirts and things here at the gift shop in the museum say established in 1834. Um, yet when you look at it, we don't really become a city until 1875. So we're going to take a look at a little of these dates and, and learn a little bit more about how this all kind of came together to become St. Charles and, uh, maybe introduce a few facts you haven't known before as we do that. So let's get started. And I guess the best place to begin is probably the beginning for, um, a lot of, uh, the cities along the Fox River, and that's the um, removal of the Native Americans that were currently living in this area and had been since at least the middle to late 17th century, um, including the Potawatomi Indians, but also the Sauk and the Fox and the Ojibwa, and I guess there's probably about 20 more tribes I've forgotten. The thing that leads into all of this is something that everyone's kind of familiar with that lives in the Fox Valley, and that is um, the, the Black Hawk Wars named after an, an Indian war chief by the name of Black Hawk. I think his full name is Black Sparrow Hawk. Yep. Different uh, uh, interpretations depending on the language. Yeah. And um, in the end, there's a, a very brutal kind of a war that goes on for a period of about nine months, if I remember right. Um, and when it's all said and done, there's a treaty signed, um, which ends that war. But it also kind of inflames the populace to the point where they decide it's time to do something final with the uh, Native Americans that are left in the Great Lakes area. That's Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, I guess to some extent Indiana, although I don't often see a lot mentioned in Indiana. Um, we were just looking earlier and found out that the population of, for example, um, Potawatomi Indians in the Chicago area was only like 1,500 Um which kind of gives me a, a, an idea of you know the amount of land we're talking populated by 1,500 people. It's an amazing the impact that that has on the ability for the white settlers to to continue to move west. Okay. So um, in 1832, then uh, the war ends. Then in 1833, it's decided that we need to finalize a treaty which will get the Indians to cede all their lands that are, exist east of the Mississippi and basically put an end to this and put the Mississippi River between the settlers and the Native Americans. Um, depending on who you read, it was done for the purposes of protecting the Native Americans as much as it was the uh, white settlers, because, of course, nothing was going to stop the white settlers from coming in, and that was only going to lead to more trouble. So uh, in, in 1833, um, they decided to use the city of Chicago, which at this time um, has about 150 buildings in it, I read, and a couple of hotels, but it's also a good central point. It was even known as a Potawatomi resort in earlier times. They all come in. They they decide to uh, have their treaty meeting there in uh, Chicago um, in 1833. A lot of negotiations go on. It finally gets signed in September 26th of 1833. 
And that's just kind of the start of the process because after it gets signed by the the Native Americans um, and by the the other people that are involved, a lot of them, by the way, being traders and uh, retails and everything else, everybody has to get their bills cleared um, by this treaty. Kinsey, you got names that you recognize on streets today in Chicago? Very much so. Kinsey comes into play big time there. Ends up being a, a, a total bill in 1833 dollars of a little over a million dollars. Um, it's an incredible amount of land that gets seeded in this process. Um, but I think not to try to paint, paint this too rosy, it does put to rest a lot of things like past due bills that hadn't been paid from earlier treaties and some other things like that. Um, I don't think it results in any kind of windfall for the Native Americans who are being asked to give up the land they've had for you know some 500 or 200 years uh, almost. Um, but in the meantime, uh, that treaty gets signed. It doesn't get approved by Congress until 1835, if I remember correctly. Yes, yeah, 1835. Yeah, so um, kind of keep that in mind because what happens as soon as the treaty gets signed is a little bit of a land rush. Um, everybody who's kind of been held back by the fact that this war has been going on and everything else um, sees this now as an open door to begin moving west uh, from Indiana and even further east, like Vermont and New Hampshire, and to move into these new areas that have been ceded by the Native Americans. Yeah, even before the war, uh, you know, one of the reasons for the war was actually the squatters on Blackhawk's territory kind of spot. They were waiting kind of for that final call from the U.S. government to kind of take over the land that he once owned and, well, I shouldn't say owned, but once inhabited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's a good point because realistically when you get to the um, – um, Looking at where people are, by 1833, they're already kind of there. They already have opened up stores or they've already a blacksmith operation. The floodgates have kind of come, sadly, for yeah. this part of the country. But that's really the history of this whole process, right? I mean, that's what Oklahoma is all about and things like that. So um, essentially then in 1834, late 1833, um, it already starts to happen um, um, in the fall of 1833. A guy by the name of Evan Shelby shows up with his brother-in-law, William Franklin, and they show up in St. Charles, what will eventually be St. Charles, and they plat a little homestead. And that homestead basically is on the east side of the Fox River. And depending on which history you read, they built a cabin pretty much next to what we know today as Baker Memorial Park or uh, the East Side Park, as it was also known. So they 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 build this cabin um, and then they leave because it's winter time. There's nothing else to do, and they go back to Indiana, which I believe is where they're living at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, then in May of, of 1834, springtime 1834, Evan Shelby, his brother-in-law William Franklin, and uh, William's wife Lydia, who is Evan Shelby's sister, all show up uh, here and they take possession of that log cabin that Evan had built. Um, at this point, I think this, it's about six acres is what he had originally staked out. But somewhere along the way, he purchases a lot more property from other people who show up, and he ends up building a pretty good size uh, homestead on the east side of the of the Fox River. Ira Menard and Dean Fearson are two other names that we hear about a lot, also buried in the North Cemetery here in St. Charles, and they are uh, at the time doing developments in Chicago. Yep, <laughs> buying vacant lots and and selling them for more money. Flipping, yeah, <laughs> basically flipping property. Um, but again, uh, Chicago is a very small town at this time. It's not even as big as, as what soon will be St. Charles or Elgin or Aurora because we really are pos- uh, positioned in a great place for like farms and agriculture and dairy and things. So uh, 1834, um, 
uh, Reed Pearson, Ira Menard, visiting down in Naperville, decide to take a drive up north. They can't really drive there. I guess they must have walked or ridden a horse or something. Drove the cattle. <laughs> something, yeah. And they, uh, they, they head up, and they actually show up on the west side of the Fox River in the St. Charles area, and they purchase property from people who have already staked homesteads on the west side of the, of the river. Oh, yeah. They quickly build up their pretty much empire, essentially, yeah. of land ownership in this area mm-hmm. by just purchasing stuff from the original stake uh, claimers. Yeah. So it's, uh, I guess that's where we get the established in 1834. We now have Reed Fearson and Ira Menard on the west side. We have uh, Evan Shelby on the east side. And I guess it becomes kind of obvious at that point. One thing, just like our t-shirts say, 1834 is when we're established, that's obvious. But also it's obvious that there's it's time to build a city or a village at this location. Well, you have your first permanent annual settlement of a person that's not of native origin here in 1834, finally sticking it out for a whole year. So, yeah. Yeah, so they Menard, Pearson, and another guy by the name of Bella T. Hunt um, decide to form a company to create this town. They negotiate with Evan Shelby. They get eight acres of land along the east side of the Fox River in exchange for the fact that they will build a dam, they'll build a bridge, and they'll build raceways to put up mills in the town. That's in 1836, okay? Um, That's also the time when a guy by the name of Mark Fletcher, who arrived with some of the most early settlers here in this area, gets the job of platting out the town to create the streets and all the things like that in town. And he does that in 1836, um, and it actually gets given to Kane County in 1836, but for a lot of reasons that a lot of people probably today would say, yeah, that makes sense, uh, the government doesn't get around to ratifying and, and recording that plat until 1837. Yep. So this is the first date that I kind of feel like we have it, uh, really uh, legally become a village, okay, is 1837. Now we actually have platted property to, to hand out. So. Yep. 1837, uh, Shelby, Evan Shelby dies. Um, kind of, that's the end of our, one of our founders of this town. Hello, I must be going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't too long. Um, his wife, by the way, or his sister, uh, Lydia and her husband, Franklin last here till like 1850. And then they head off to California and uh, join the gold rush out there. Yeah. Basically. A good amount of early settlers kept on, uh, either moving out to new pioneer territory or, you know, we do have a lot over here that have remained for over 200 years, you know? True. And some that went Almost out and came 200. back. Some yeah. went out, came back. Actually, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I read about, yeah. Um, 1836 is also when, uh, I forgot to mention this, when Kane County is created. So we kind of predate even Kane County. In 1838, another guy shows up on the scene here. He actually arrives in 1837, and that's a guy by the name of Stephen Sanborn Jones. You hear us talk about him a lot, usually in shorthand of S.S. Jones. Um, He was part of our spiritualism exhibit that we just finished um, this month. Very interesting life. Yeah, he's got, I mean, he's got his hands in everything from pharmacist to probate judge to attorney to hotelier to newspaper editor yeah. <laughs> yeah and politically he's involved in everything too so uh, maybe sometime we'll do a podcast just on him i think we could do a couple volumes of that oh gosh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um stephen sanborn jones comes into this here now and what he does is he helps us uh at one point um change our name because up until now we've been known as charleston and it turns out that there's an older city down south it's actually the county seat for coles county Illinois called Charleston. So they decide we need to change our name from Charleston to St. Charles. I tell you this, I hadn't mentioned it before we started, but I, in my research for this, I found out there's actually another Charleston in <laughs> Illinois. So I'm not sure why we had to change our name, but we did. 
And uh, they had a big meeting about it. All the town elders got together and they decided that they'd, they'd talk about the appropriate name. Uh, somebody suggested the name Ithaca. And I know somebody piped up and said no German would be able to pronounce that word. So they wouldn't take that one. All these are probably apocryphal stories as much as anything else. Uh, but St. Uh, S.S. Jones has always been given credit for actually coming up with the name St. Charles. It does make a lot of sense considering he was the first lawyer. He was the guy that was actually able to probably go and see that there was a Charleston. No, we can't file this under St. Charles or under Charleston. We have to do it under this, that, that. They don't want to name it. That's why we're one of the few uh, towns around the Fox River that aren't named after a eastern city. True. Yeah. yeah. We actually took a, a breath there and yeah. decided to do it with something here and locally. So um, another point that comes up when, when you and I have talked about this is the fact that um, in 1839, when that's actually in, encapsulated in law down in Springfield, um, it's actually done on uh, February 9th, 1839, um, Illinois legislature passes that. Um, they actually pass it with the spelling ST period, Charles, St. Charles. And then anytime you look at that further on, it's always ST period Charles. So I think some people think we're abbreviating the word saint. That's literally how it's been the entire <laughs> time. You could even the Library of Congress under their uh, subject headings for us archiving nerds here. Uh, it's Saint S A I N T Charles, and then ST is kind of down below as a secondary. So it's funny to find the, even the official definition sometimes. Yeah, it's yeah. not the official definition. No, so we're it's it's a it's an interesting point, a nerdy point, maybe a maybe a good one for pub trivia sometime. But anyways, that yeah. SD period is officially the name of of Saint Charles. Other stuff we find like that. Uh, there was a precinct that we actually existed in called Sandusky Precinct. I think that name has pretty much disappeared from history at this point. Yeah. Um, that name is changed from Sandusky Precinct to St. Charles Precinct. It included parts of Geneva, too, actually, the town of Geneva, I think, and, mm -hmm. and parts would, of that precinct. Yeah, down by uh, the Oak Hill Cemetery area, kind of. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, um, and then uh, in 1850, uh, S.S. Jones pops up again. Uh, this time, I guess, probably more in his attorney role or maybe as a former probate judge or something. But he takes a role in getting us our first village incorporation. Um, and our first village charter. And just to make a point about charters and, and those kinds of things, because I had to do some reading to understand that myself, um, only states and the federal government have the legal right, let's say, to pass laws, to collect taxes, to make have courts and things like that. In order for cities, towns, and villages to have those rights, they have to be chartered by the state. And essentially, the state has to give up that right officially to the cities, villages, and towns to be able to make those laws, to collect taxes and collect fines and all that kind of stuff. And so in 1850, we get our first charter. That's our charter that kind of takes us from being a town to being a village. Mm -hmm. Next thing I find in the books is 1856. That's when our corporation boundaries change. And I think that's more of a fact of the fact that when they laid out the city, we've got some maps here from 1855. You can see it's really, it makes absolute sense. We're a square, okay? We go from basically 7th on the, in the east to 7th on the west. Um, and, and essentially that's what they did was they made the boundaries match um, the way everything had been platted. And it's a two-mile square. Yeah. So if you look at the maps on there, you're going to see a perfect square. And then there's going to be chunks here, chunks there, chunks there, depending on what year you're looking at there. Yeah, <laughs> Menard, Pearson edition, Osgood, da-da-da, tons of names. The, Mil the Millington... And, and as much as I'm sure the OCD people wanted to keep it a square, that was not yeah. going to happen. Right? <laughs> yeah, we had to grow. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Okay, so uh, 1850, we're in Olive Village. Uh, a lot of history takes place, but in 1875, um, some new stuff comes along. And one of those things is a lot of new abilities are given to cities. And because of that, uh, St. Charles be- decides to become a charter or a city. And in order to do that, they have to reorganize under a charter, and that's in 1875. Um, that's the year we first elect a city council. That's the year we first then get a mayor, okay, in this town. Those things together then, to me, tell me that's really when the city of St. Charles becomes a city. Take notes for the sesquicentennial coming up. Yeah. <laughs> so don't don't miss the um, the point that you don't want to take the date 1875 because you miss a lot of history prior to Oh, gosh, to that. you would miss literally the founding of this place. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm not really talking that we should do that, but I think it's important because it can get confusing. You know, our, when were we established? When were we a village? When were we a city? So now we know. Established in 1834, we're a village in 1850, and in 1875, we're, we're now a city. So Climbing the ladder. Yeah, little by little. I don't know when we become a metropolis. Isn't that, <laughs> is that the next thing? Or <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I hope that helps you understand a little bit about how, the, how we came to where we are today and a little bit of what the history of these people are. Um, it doesn't put to rest another question that a lot of people bring up to me, and I've even seen it in history books, the argument over who is the founding father for St. Charles. Was it Evan Shelby or was it Ira Menard and Dean Fearson that were probably more the people directly revol- involved in making this a city, not so much just a, a hamlet or a, a place to exactly. stop? So um, I won't get into that argument today. I don't know that I've really got any skin in that game right now, but um, I think it's an interesting question to discuss at some point. Absolutely. So anything else you want to talk about with this uh, this topic here before we go on, Eric? No, I'm okay there, Steve. Okay, great. In the meantime, then, let's talk a little bit more about what's going on at the museum. Uh, This Um, I can participate in. Good. (laughs) Uh, I know we just took down the exhibit for spiritualism, had a great response to that. I think we had some fun with it, with our uh, stuff that was going on there. Uh, What's going on right now in the museum? So right now, I just finished putting up our exhibit celebrating the 50th anniversary of, I shouldn't say celebrating, I should say honoring the 50th anniversary of Operation Homecoming, which uh, was from the Vietnam War. This is 1973. We're actually home to the last POW to be released by the Viet Cong during the Vietnamese War. Uh, His name was Robert White, and he was a captain at the time, uh, serving in the United States Army. He was shot down over Vietnam in 1969, and he was finally uh, brought back to the United States on April 1st, 1973. So we want to get that date all set up there. We'd also like to invite any veterans to come down and see the exhibit for a price of free. Uh, I think that would be appropriate for the time. Great. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, we talked a little bit about this earlier. I graduated high school in 1973. Um, all of that seems to me like almost current history. I mean, what was going on with the, the wind down of the Vietnam War and everything else. And I think uh, Captain White, do we say he's Major White, I guess, at yeah. this point in his life, isn't he? Major, yes. Major White uh, actually um, encapsulates that. Uh, everything that he went through, um, the the point at which he was a POW and the fact that he was the last POW, mm-hmm. almost forgotten POW. He, he was pretty much forgotten for three, at least three days there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, amazing story. So uh, we've got some nice artifacts here. We got a, a great, uh, Eric did a great job of encapsulating all of the, the timeline that happened and everything else and putting it in context. So if you get a chance, come down. We're open Thursday through Saturday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, if you're part of a group that wants to come in and see it specifically, just give us a call here at the museum. 630-584-6967. We can make arrangements to show that to you. Um, again, 
veterans are free uh, to see this exhibit. Um, please come in. We'd love to hear your stories and, and get a chance to meet you. And that exhibit's going to run till when? That's going to run until May. Until May. Okay. And uh, so we got a, a plenty of time to get everybody in here to see that. Um, we'll have a book for people to write down their memories to as well, kind of in the back by that exhibit, is, if you'd like to. Okay, great. Yeah, that's a good idea. In the meantime, speaking of May, uh, our next special event is coming up. There will be a special event before that, but I don't have the details yet. That event is for VIP members. We'll probably talk about it in our next podcast a little bit more. Um, in the meantime, on May the 3rd, uh, Ron Onesti um, of the Arcata Theater has been kind enough to uh, set up an event for us in his new rock and ravioli restaurant down on the first floor of the Arcata Theater. You mean the meatball guy there, Steve? Exactly, the meatball guy. Um, and you don't know how important that is to this event because um, part of what this event's going to include is uh, Ron's famous Italian feast, which includes his meatballs. Absolutely delicious. Uh, yeah, May 3rd, uh, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. We're going to all get together there and rock and ravioli. Understand it's a limited uh, thing. There's only X number of seats in a restaurant that you can fill, according to the fire marshal. So we can only sell a certain number of seats. So you're going to want to get in on this if you're interested soon. May 3rd, uh, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., we're going to have uh, Ron's Italian Feast will be there with his meatballs. We're going to actually have uh, entertainment provided to us by Rick Elvis Saucedo. Uh, Rick will be uh, doing his Elvis tribute act. Uh, most people in this area are familiar with that. Come out and see him. Um, and we're going to do all of this for the price of $50. Um, it is a fundraiser for the museum. Uh, we will be holding a 50-50 cash raffle, uh, awarding at least 50% of that prize that night. Or actually, not at least, exactly 50% of that prize that night. And we're going to be giving away two tickets to our December 8th holiday gala at the St. Charles Country Club. Um, and that's a pretty cool gift to get. Oh, gosh, to. yeah. I mean, that's one of our the big event of the year. Yeah. So uh, you'll be able to get in on all of that. Um, to sign up for that, go to our website, stcmuseum.org. When you go there, there should be a pop-up down in the lower right-hand corner that'll ask you if you're there to RSVP for the event. Click on that button that's there and it'll take you in. Get your credit card ready. It's $50. Um, and hopefully I'll get a chance to see some some new faces there and lots of the old regular faces that uh, uh, support the museum. Um, anything else you want to talk about, Eric? Oh, I'd just like to give a big shout out to Waldo at Stoke Graphics for helping us create the uh, text panels for our latest exhibit on Robert White and our last exhibit and probably our upcoming exhibit as well. <laughs> uh, he does a fantastic job with wraps and other types, types of uh, graphic needs. Great. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, the boards are beautiful. Um, uh, again, get a chance to come in here and see us. Thursday through Saturday, uh, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., uh, come in to see us, and, and we'll be happy to talk to you and show you the whole place around here. So uh, that's about it for now for me and Eric. I am going to uh, kind of segue from this into an interview that I recorded last week with uh, Mr. Steve Martin. And uh, Steve took some time. He's a former president and board member here at the museum. Took some time to kind of bring me up to speed on the history of the museum. So yeah, it was a lot of fun, and uh, well, stay tuned for that. We'll be coming right up now, okay? Eric, meantime, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you have a great rest of the day now. Yeah, same to you, Eric, and stay tuned, everybody, because here comes Steve Martin. Thanks. Welcome. This is Steve Gibson, board president of the St. Charles History Museum, and I am here talking on the St. Charles History Chronicle podcast. Uh, but I had uh, a celebrity, a local celebrity in, so I thought I would put him behind the microphone. We could talk a little bit about the history of the St. Charles History Museum because it is the 90th anniversary for the museum. Uh, the celebrity I'm talking about is uh, Mr. Steve Martin. Um, you know him probably as half of the duo of Steve Martin and Martin Short. 
Um, I, I know it gets confusing all the time, but um, oh no, wait, no, you're not actually that person at all, are you? Okay, I don't play the banjo, and uh, <laughs> I've never had an arrow through my head. No, no do you know magic at all? Or? I uh, did magic as a young kid, so we do share that in common. Okay, all right. Well, no, this is local Steve Martin. Everyone uh, basically that's lived here for more than about six months has probably run into him in one or more of his volunteer capacities. Um, and we were actually working today on the St. Patrick's Day Parade lineup. So that's how we kind of got started on that. Uh, but I thought I'd bring him in because he used to also be the president of the St. Charles History Museum. Uh, so I thought we'd talk a little bit about his time here. And I think he was president at a time when we went through some really um, significant structural changes. Um, everyone kind of knows we started in 1933, St. Charles Heritage Society. Um, that society, um, historical society, was it historical? Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. Cause I know we get a lot of paperwork that says heritage society. So somewhere in there, the bank got us done. The, the bank still has us as St. Charles heritage center, by the way, um, St. Charles heritage center. I can tell you the story about that. Okay. All right. It. So it was historical society. All right. We'll correct that. Um, so the St. Charles historical society started as almost like a club. Um, the first thing we've got is in 1933, uh, during the centennial, um, so celebration for the city, they have a big exhibit on the second floor of Colson's, which includes, I believe, some artwork that R.T. Crane owned, along with some of Colson's artwork. And I think they encouraged the community to bring their pieces down to have them on exhibit, too. Um, that exhibit goes through the year. And then we've always had this terrible news that on Christmas Day, 1933, there was a fire at Colson's that basically destroyed at least the second floor um, and damaged the first floor. And we always thought we lost a lot of our collection in that fire. We now think that's not the case. We think that that was mostly artwork and family heirlooms and things like that that were up there. Obviously, things you don't want to lose anyways, but not necessarily the, the irreplaceable artifacts that we had for the city. So um, that's good news for us. But So that's 1933. We're kind of a club. We don't really have a, a space to call our own. In 1940, Colonel Baker and the Norrises decide to fund the construction of the Municipal Center, and in their plans at the Municipal Center, they include something, I've looked at the blueprints recently, they called it an industrial museum, right? right. Yes. And um, and when that's completed, we actually move in there. Uh, can you kind of take me from there to where we end up today here in the McCormick Oil Building? Um, I know that's the period that you're kind of part of. Yeah, I can tell you, they, as, as you mentioned, the Industrial Museum uh, at that time consisted of the space which is now occupied by the mayor's office and the mayor's uh, secretary or or assistant reception area on the north side of the lower level. Uh, it was staffed by volunteers, and in fact, I can recall Reverend uh, David Ekstrom from the Lutheran Church as the volunteer at the door as you came in to, to tour the, the museum when I was much, much, much younger. And um, over time, they did add a paid staffer, and that was Barbara Martin was the executive director, and I think she was the first paid staffer. No relation to me, and, and she was very proud of that, I'm sure. But at any rate, she operated the museum uh, still at the Municipal Center. Uh, over time, we were able to add a collections manager and an educator, and then we had a couple part-time people as well. Uh, long, sometime in the 1990s, there was a sense that we needed to uh, relocate the museum for two reasons. Number one is uh, we needed more space for the muse museum's artifacts, and at the same time, the city needed more space for their offices. Uh, so there was, a, uh, at one time, a consideration to moving to the St. Charles Savings and Loan location on South 2nd Street. And a fundraising effort was put in place. It was not successful, however, so that fell through. And then we kind of uh, uh, reconsidered what we would do. And at the, about the same time, the city was getting ready to uh, construct a 
parking garage over here on the east side, just behind the current museum site. And they acquired the museum building, which at that time was a gas station, or had been a gas station, was closed and uh, abandoned for a while. Um, and also part of the uh, building next door, which was the St. Charles office supply, was the back portion of that was demolished to make a way for the uh, parking garage. So it's, so at that point, then, the um, city was making us an offer to relocate from the municipal center to the former uh, Texaco gas station. And uh, there was some remediation needed to be done for um, purposes of cleaning up the gas station site, and that took some time. And uh, architect Mike Dixon, local architect, took care of the plans for the site, and uh, ultimately all the work was done, and we relocated from the municipal center up here. And um, I was president in the mid-90s uh, during the process of trying to raise money, and I kind of fell into the position when my predecessor uh, called me on a Tuesday evening, uh, night before our board meeting, and told me that he was resigning the next morning as president of the board and also as uh, a, a board member. So sure enough, the next morning he opened the meeting, resigned, and I became president. That was uh, June of 1995. So my first task then was to get us back on track and uh, get everybody's um, uh, energy level lifted and, and get ready to make a move. And um, I stayed on as president for about two and a half years, so uh, succeeded by Brian Henry. And uh, in the meantime, we relocated over here, and I don't recall the date that we moved into this site, uh, but it had uh, certainly been improved greatly and uh, has been a nice addition to the community. Well, we enjoy it. You did a fantastic job, and, I, and and it's a really usable space, and it's a compact space. Believe me, I, I think we can use three times as much space, but um, for what we've got, and the, the, the heat works, and the air conditioning works, <laughs> and the lights come on in the morning, so that's all fantastic. Um, so uh, among the many things that, that we did here was we had to raise money on a regular basis. Do you recall any of the things you guys did as, as a board to raise money for the museum, things that were are memorable? Well, I, I, the uh, the wall just outside um, the the front door to the museum here, we raised funds by um, having people in the community um, basically offer a donation in return. Their name is placed on this board, a permanently uh, concrete, I think it is, or stone mm -hmm. uh, monument outside the, the building here. Um, they also did, um, and I don't recall what they called the program, but uh, basically memberships that were very, very special, and they were $1,000 memberships lifetime lifetime, lifetime membership okay yeah. um i know they had offered lifetime memberships prior to my coming on the board which turned out not to be a good thing because the the lifetime fee was was not very much at all mm -hmm. at the time and certainly didn't uh, take care of all the mailings and contacts over the future but but anyway they did raise some funds that way we also had um fundraising events we had living history event which was uh well received we were at the uh, langham park and also out at uh uh, Leroy Oaks for those events, and I think that there were three of those probably back in the uh, early to mid nineteen nineties. Okay, and but uh, pig roast uh, raffles those came later. Later, okay. yeah, that was after my term on the board. Uh, okay. there's there's term limits, so you're allowed three three year terms at the time I was on initially. So I actually served three three year terms, and uh, was off for about nine months or so. Uh, continued to attend board meetings. If they went into executive session, I'd step out of the room. Um, but I just sat in the audience and typically was the only one there that was not on the board. Mm -hmm. 
And then they uh, invited me to fill out uh, the vacancy created by the resignation of another board member. So I got back into it and then um, was elected three three-year terms and, and then, uh, you know, stepped aside yet again. So now you get a full pension from the History Museum, right? right? <laughs> I, uh, my pension, yes. My, my zero <laughs> pension amounts to exactly what I made that, as president. Oh, yes. that's good. Well, and I'm sure your your uh, pay is probably about well, the same yeah, as mine. I don't, I don't right? think it's changed much yeah, since those days. Despite no. inflation. No, there's a, that. Yeah, maybe a little bit better in the health benefit. No, no, there's not that Yeah, either. we didn't have that. No, yeah. no, I guess yeah. not. Well, we do it for the fun of it. We do it for the uh, – my personal feeling is I do it for the education. Um, it, when I'm here, everybody that walks in the door – Almost everybody that walks in the door has a story to tell about the history of St. Charles. And as a person that didn't grow up here myself, um, it's allowed me to really feel and become a part of the community. Um, and, and obviously working with people like you, that, that helps too. Um, one of the toughest things for uh, historians of any kind, amateur, professional, is sorting out the, the legend and the myth from the reality. It's also one of the things that's hardest to kind of express to the public because some things become very much ingrained and accepted and things like that. And I'll give you a, a, a quick example. Um, one of the stories that we always hear is that Evan Shelby, our founder, um, after he died in 1837, just a few years after he got here, um, he was buried at the West Side School. And years later, when they decided they wanted to build the West Side School, um, they had to dig him up and move him to the South Cemetery, which is the original cemetery. And that's the story a lot of people have been told their whole lives. Um, it turns out that's not true, okay, that he, when he died, he literally was buried in the South Cemetery, which was the original cemetery here in St. Charles. But someone else was actually buried out there, and they did have to dig him up, part of the original group of settlers that came out here. But um, those are the kind of stories that it ta probably takes another 50 years to get them out of the, out of the common consciousness. So one of the things that I think you probably had to do as much as we had to do is um, present to the public, you know, you have, whether you got exhibits or whether you're doing um, talks to people or s stuff like that. Did you, th those things, did you have them here at the museum like we try to do, or did you have to go other places like the library or something if you were doing something like that? In our day, we were, again, based at the Municipal Center, and at that time, we typically would have the programs at the library. Um, we had some outdoors. We did the uh, Living History event, as I mentioned. We also did the uh, Cemetery Walk um, up in the North Cemetery, Union Cemetery. And, um, but then later on, we did more activities. Once we moved to this location here on Main Street uh, at 215, we did activities here. Um, but again, we used the library even then because of the, the number of seats that would be available to us at the library yeah. in the Carnegie Room versus what we had available here in our exhibit hall. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, I appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today. Anything else that I haven't covered about being I, here that you want to... Just to clarify, you didn't think I was around at the same time as Evan Shelby, right? You didn't uh, want me to... Well, I, I was going to ask you that maybe off the air. Okay, so I didn't, didn't want to cause right, any embarrassment. Good enough. But um, you and Cindy are VIP members. I, we appreciate that very much and appreciate having you guys show up at our VIP events and, and hope we continue to have that relationship with you. And uh, I just want to thank you very much for being here today and, and talking to me about this. My pleasure. And it's always good to see you, Steve. All right, Steve. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the St. Charles History Chronicles podcast. This content is copyright 2023, St. Charles History Museum, all rights reserved. Additional information on this episode and other podcast episodes is available at stcmuseum.org forward slash podcast.